0: Well, everybody here, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here this morning. For those of you watching and listening, thank you also for joining us, whether it's on YouTube or Facebook. I hope that you um, will find this message uplifting, that you will hear the Lord speak to your heart personally. Um, But also, if you think this you know, message needs to go out. Someone needs to hear it. Please feel free to share it, um, like it. I think that you know how to do that on Facebook and on YouTube. If you're here in the local area in El Paso, we're in the northeast, in the corner of Gateway South and Hondo Pass. we uh, invite you to come check us out. And just come sit through one of the services and see, services and see if uh, you like it. And the Lord's calling you to, to make this your home church. Um, if you need more information about our church, you can also um, visit our website, fvcelp.org. And for the most part there, you'll find following um, all the information that you need about, about us, um, everything from our COVID guidelines to our statement of faith, um, you'll find it there. If the Lord has put in your heart to to give a special gift or offering or a tithe, there's a PayPal link there where you can give if you uh, if you want. Again, there's no obligation. You know, we're not selling any anything to you. We're we're not saying that you have to or anything like that. We, if it's in your heart. We want you to give joyfully. If you have any prayer requests, you can do that by also going to the bottom of our webpage, and there you'll find. Uh, uh, a section where you can fill out and and it'll come it'll, that request will come directly to me and if you want me to oh well, I'll be definitely praying for it but if you want me to get back to you I, I can do that as well and I'll do that as soon as I can starting next Saturday we are going to start having a women's Bible study here at the church Saturday at 11 11 a.m. If you're interested in that, um, details will be coming soon, and we'll post it on our website. And then beginning the first week of February, we are going to start having a men's study here on Friday evenings. Um, Right now we're thinking 6 o'clock, but again, more information about that will be available um, on our website um, soon, and, you know, we're... As a church, we're looking forward to that, and we we invite you to come join Especially, you know, if you need something to do on a Friday night or a Saturday morning, um, those is a great you know it's a great time where you can just meet uh, some men and some women that have a that are like-minded that have a heart for the Lord, and where you can also just develop your relationship, continue to develop your relationship with God, and have um, more again that information will be posted soon. All right so I'll begin with today's message. So uh, if you guys were here with us last week if you joined us online last week or heard the message throughout the week, you know that uh, we tried to or I tried to give you a, a pretty good overview of first Samuel. Well technically both books. Um, bit more specifically here, 1 Samuel, in order to help you understand the who, the why, the when, and the what of this book. Well, this morning, we're going to really start just digging into First Samuel by covering the first two chapters. In chapter 1, we're going to be looking at the events that led to Samuel's birth and how his mother became a beautiful example of hope, faithfulness, and devotion. In chapter 2, we'll be looking at, well, first thing we're going to be looking at is a poem that Hannah dedicated to God. And then, after that, a travesty that occurred in one particular family. And so I've titled this morning's message from desperation to hope for a couple of reasons. First of all, not only are we going to see or read about a barren woman going from desperation to hope, but we're also going to see that the nation of Israel was also in spiritual desperation. And we're going to see glimpses of the hope that They needed, that they were looking for, that they were waiting for. And secondly, I hope that in your own life as well, that you can go from desperation to hope because of Jesus Christ, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and for me. So before we get into God's word, let's ask him to speak to us this morning. Lord God, thank you again. We come before you. Before we get into your word, to to ask you to speak powerfully to us through through your word and through this message that I'm about to deliver, Lord, Lord, we know that you work in amazing, beautiful ways, and so we ask right now that you remove all distractions, Lord. That we just uh, focus on the written word and and the message here, Lord, and so that whatever it is that you need to tell us, that we will be able to hear it clearly, Lord. So open our minds, open our hearts to receive it. I also pray for those that are watching and or are going to be listening later on, Lord, that you will minister to them as well, that you will speak to them powerfully this morning. That they will, after this message, that lives will be transformed, that relationships will be healed. That everyone will see that again, because of you alone, people can go from desperation to hope. So fill this room with your spirit, Lord, and we just continue to worship you now. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, First Samuel. Chapter 1. And the Word of God says, There was a man from Ramathaim Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim. His son was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, in Ephraimite. Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second, Penaniah, Penina, sorry, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord, to the Lord of Armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phineas, were the Lord's priest. However, Elkanah offered a sacrifice. However, whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice. He always gave portions of the meat to his wife, uh, Penana Penana, Penana, (laughs) Penana, and each of their sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her her rival would would taunt her severely just to provoke her, because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband, Elkanah, would say. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest, Eli, was sitting on the chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, and, f- and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth, the depth of the ang- of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, "Go in peace, and may and may the God of Israel grant grant the request that you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you." She replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. Now, since Samuel is the principal figure in these first eight chapters of this book, the emphasis of these of this opening section is on Samuel's family. The first two verses introduces introduces us to Elkanah, whose name means God created, who was a Levite from Ramathim Zophim, and you'll find out soon that's when it shortened. It's the town of um, Ramah in Ephraim, and his two wives, Hannah, whose name means grace, and Panana, (laughs) whose name means pearl. Now, it's important to keep in mind that although in the New Testament, the Lord permitted bigamy and polygamy, its practice never received his sanction. According to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, God's original plan was that one man be married to one woman for one lifetime. As long as they live. Now one commentator noted that Elkanah's bigamy was one indication of how lawless the times were in which Samuel was born. So we're also informed here that, as was the case with Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel, Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. Back then, a woman's ability to have children, especially a male heir to pass along the father's name, was considered an expression of God's blessing. Conversely, the Israelites considered the inability to bear children as a curse. But Hannah's barrenness, which verse 5 tells us was a direct result of God's sovereignty, didn't diminish Elkanah's love for her. In fact, he loved her so much that he gave her twice what he gave his second wife when they took offerings to the Lord at Shiloh during the yearly, yearly feast there. But this drew forth stinging taunts from Penina. Year after year, her barbs cut deeper and deeper, causing Hannah depression, grief, and loss of appetite. None of Elkanah's assurances of devotion made her feel any better. And as you saw, he would even tell her, aren't I better than having ten sons? Well, you know, none of that relieved any of the grief, the depression that she was feeling. Desperate, she goes to the Lord's temple, casts herself and casts herself entirely on the mercies of God. Without her husband, she presents, Hannah presents herself, before the Lord and interacts with the priest there, Eli. And again, he was the priest of the Lord's temple there in Shiloh. Now, their interaction consisted of three speeches. First, in verse 11, Hannah makes a vow directly to Yahweh, to God, the same God who in verses 5 and 6 had caused her barrenness. She pleaded... Lord of armies, will you take notice of your servant's affliction? Remember and not forget me, and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. So in essence, she vows that if God blesses her with a son, he will be preserved for obedience to him alone, to him only. By way of the Nazarite vow described in Numbers chapter six, verses one through eight. Now, if this sounds familiar, this was the same vow undertaken by the parents of Samson in Judges chapter thirteen verses two to five, whom they they dedicated to the Lord under under nearly identical circumstances. The second speech of Hannah in verses 15 and 16 is one of self-indication to refute Eli's mistaken assessment of her. Back in 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14, the priest had thought that she was drunk and rebuked her for it. However, she wasn't. She was desperate. She respectfully replies I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. The third speech, in verse, in verse 17, Eli responds with a word of encouragement. Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the request You've made of him. As a result, the grief and despair she felt in verse 8 disappeared in verse 18. Why? Because she held on to and believed the words that she received by Eli that God would answer her prayer. It then says at the end of verse 18 that Hannah went on her way, she ate and no longer looked despondent. Here's the thing, though. Although her circumstances were the same, she was no longer discouraged and was now a new, restored woman with a new chance of life. What an example Hannah is in her praying. It was a prayer born out of sorrow and suffering, But in spite of her feelings, she laid bare her soul before the Lord. John Bunyan, the author, said this. In prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Well, that's the way that Hannah prayed. And that's the way we ought to pray as well. Hannah's prayer revealed that faith and devotion, that her faith and devotion were so strong that they rose above the misunderstanding and criticism of the nation's highest spiritual leader at that time. And So likewise, when you give your best to the Lord, it's not unusual to be criticized by people who really ought to be encouraging you. Moses was criticized by his brother and sister. David by his wife. And Mary of Bethany by the apostle, by an apostle. Yet all three were commended by the Lord. So friends, if you're a Christian, you can expect You can expect people to criticize you. But you ought to live so nobody will believe them. An important lesson that we can learn here is that God's people need to be a little bit more spiritually sensitive. So they can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Eli accused her of pouring out, pouring out too much wine, when all she was really doing was pouring out her soul to God in prayer. Was the last time you all did that? Just to pour your soul out in prayer, it may not, you may not be here in church, but have you ever gone home and just turned on some worship music and just poured your soul out to me? Just let the tears fall, and whether in in anguish or whether in joy, man, it is, it's so relieving. Because you know that he's ministering to you there. Now, it doesn't say that he apologized, that Eli apologized to her for judging her so severely, but at least he gave her his blessing. As believers, we need to be mindful of this and not be so quick to judge a fellow believer's behavior without really understanding what's going on. The Bible, the Bible tells us in James chapter 1, verse 19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Therefore, we must be humble enough to admit when we're wrong and apologize when we mistakenly mischaracterize someone's sincere intentions. Okay, so the next section we're about to read tells us about what happened afterwards. We'll be picking up in verse 19. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterwards, they returned home to Ramah, then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, because she said, I requested him from the Lord. When Elkanah and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explained to her husband, After the child is weaned, I will take him to appear. In the Lord's presence and stay there permanently. Her husband Elkanah replied, "Do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word." So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until until she was weaned. Until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and a clay jar of wine. but well, the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh, and he slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my Lord, she said, As surely as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord, for as long as he lives lives he is given to the lord then he worshiped the lord there now i want i want to go over something important that happened the next day that is often overlooked in the story it says in verse 19 that the next morning elcana and hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Now the reason this is so important is because had they not done that, everything else that followed may not have happened. They both went up together and worshipped the Lord with a joyful heart, with a hopeful heart. And, you know, the Lord heard them and, and remembered them. Ladies and gentlemen, this goes to show what you've heard me say countless of times before. No matter what your circumstances are, the Lord desires your worship. In good times and in bad, our heart should always be that of Psalm 86, 12. I will praise you with all my heart, Lord my God. I will honor your name forever. And when you're going through the storm or whether, you know, your life is sunny and clear, worship Him. I know it could be hard sometimes, but even in those difficult times, that's when we need to go to Him the most. That's when we just need to rely on Him the most and get our strength from He's the only one that will get us through these difficult times. Well, verses 19 and 20 tell us that Elkanah was intimate with his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. Not too long after that, Hannah had a son, whom she named Samuel. In the biblical world, Names were more than a simple way or simply a way of identifying a person. They were a summary of statements of a person's character or a summary of statements of the God's work in a person's life. A means of pointing to to some aspect of God's person or saving work. Thus, the name Samuel means asked of God and implies that she requested him from the Lord. So the following year, Elkanah went up to Shiloh to worship, but Hannah didn't go. Why? Because she wanted to wean Samuel first before she left him in Shiloh. In those days, mothers didn't have tools or resources such as baby formula or mechanical pumps to feed their babies. Therefore, breastfeeding was common. Sometimes until, and yes, sometimes they would do this until their children were up to five years old. Well, Elkanah, her husband, saw the wisdom in this and agreed that Han- Hannah and Samuel should remain at home. However, he may have been a little apprehensive that the temporary withholding of Samuel from the service of the Lord might jeopardize the Lord's favor. But in spite of his reservations, he respected her decision and told her, May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed home, and and there she nursed her son until she weaned him. After Samuel's weaning was complete, she fulfilled her pledge and took him with her to Shiloh. After she and Elkanah made three sacrificial offerings, they then offered Samuel to the Lord as a lifelong Nazarite. Now keep in mind that even though they handed Samuel, brought the boy to Eli, they were really giving him up to the Lord, not to Eli. Eli. So, As many of you might imagine, this was heartbreaking for both Elkanah and Hannah. Elkanah had his firstborn son, and Hannah finally had a child whom she weaned, whom she spent time with, possibly up to five years knowing him, hugging him, loving him, seeing him laugh, seeing him cry, but still... In spite of that difficulty, in spite of that heartache, she was a woman of prayer and integrity and knew the importance of keeping her vow and honoring her commitment. Now, I'm sure Eli the priest would have thought it strange that just some random couple would voluntarily come up to him and say, here's my child. Here, take him. However, using the oath formula, as surely as you live, my Lord, Hannah reminded Eli who she was, what had happened, and what she was now doing. In remarkable faithfulness to her vow, and in one of the most sobering scenes of devotion in the books of Samuel, Hannah finds it possible to return to God what he had graciously given to her. So having come to God with nothing, she now returns to Shiloh to give back that which means everything. In light of this, we must understand that the story then isn't really a story about Samuel's birth, but rather a story of fidelity between God and Hannah. Hannah. God's Hannah's faithfulness to God in keeping her vow, and God's faithfulness in giving Hannah her child, what she wanted. Furthermore, this story also shows us that God was that was the center of every aspect of this story. From beginning, from the beginning, He was the one who kept Hannah from conceiving, to the end when He gave her what she asked Him for. So thus it seems to me that the narrative here wants us to note, what it wants us to notice is that Yahweh, that God, is also the key figure in our lives, in your life, and in many of our difficult circumstances. And it invites us to wait in our trouble with such a focus on God to see if prayers can be uttered. If vows can be made, if gifts can be received, if thanks can be rendered, if worship can be enacted. When all this becomes possible, it prepares us for a new and amazing, and new and amazing things God is about to do in our lives. It says in Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 31, those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength they will soar on wings like eagles they will run and not become weary they will walk and not faint well if your bibles are still open i now want you to turn to chapter 2 in the first part of this chapter we're going to see we're going to read a poem that only gives us an eloquent expression of the birth of Samuel, but it also brings closure to chapter one. So let's read that now. First Samuel chapter two. Hannah prayed, "My heart rejoices in the Lord, my horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice." in your salvation there is no one holy like the lord there is no one besides you and there is no rock like our god do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth for the lord is a god of knowledge and actions are weighed by him the bows of the warriors the bows of the warriors are broken but the feeble are clothed with strength Those who are full hire themselves out for food. But those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who was childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and exalts He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with the noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Alkana went home to Rama, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of the priest Eli. Typically old. Testament historical narratives occasionally insert poetry to supplement a particular episode Such poems are usually a prayer a song or a speech of a central character and they frequently crystallize the important theological themes of the book or of the episode well, this one we read here does just that but It's also so messianic in character that Mary, the mother of Jesus, incorporated it, many aspects of this poem, into her own song of triumph in Luke chapter 1. There in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, she praised Mary, that is, praised God for having selected her to be the human mother of Jesus, the Messiah. So this beautiful poem, or many people call it a song, Hannah does three things. She exalts, she extols, and she expects. She exalts, extols, and expects. Expects. Let me explain. First, in verse 1, she exalts the Lord, or she rejoices. Hannah with... Clear a clear reference to her rival Panana spoke of her joy in the Lord, who helped her achieve satisfaction at last. Notice again that she rejoices in the Lord. In no way could she rejoice in leaving her son, but she could rejoice in the Lord. She shows us here that even in the most desperate situation, when we have nothing else to rejoice in, we can rejoice in the Lord. She also rejoices that her horn is lifted up by the Lord. Horns used by animals for defense or attack symbolize strength. Thus Hannah here is describing the strength that had come to her. At a time of crisis, in difficult times, our, our horn can be lifted up by the Lord. And when He does, we can proclaim the words the psalmist wrote in Psalm 9210: "You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil." Next, in verses 2 to 8, Hannah extols. Now this word here is another way of saying that she glorified the Lord. See, through his attributes, God's attributes such as holiness, strength, or as it says here, rock, knowledge and discernment, and in view of his actions toward both the ungodly and the godly, the Lord demonstrated his awesome sovereignty in human affairs. And so knowing this, she glorified the Lord because this holy God is a just judge of the actions of his people. Unlike the people involved in human judicial proceedings, human judges that we see in courts, the Lord knows everything and is able to weigh us and our actions accurately. She also glorifies him in verse five as she references herself and Penina. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The breaking of bows, of bows in verse 4. Hunger no more in verse 5, the raising of the dead in verse 6, and elevating the poor in verses 7 through 8 all refer to the principle that the final disposition of all things is in the hands of the Lord. She then alludes in verse 8 that he who created the world was able to cause her to triumph. Folks, in the same way, he, he does the same for you and for me. If he allows us to live, he can make us rich or poor, exalted or abased, for he knows what's best. Now, this doesn't suggest that you should meekly comply with difficult circumstances and do nothing about them. Not at all. Rather, it suggests that you can change these circumstances. Rather, it suggests that you can't change these circumstances without the Lord's help. In His grace, God can choose the poor and raise them up to sit with princes. Princes. He takes them from the dust and the garbage heap and puts them on glorious thrones. But isn't that what God did for Jesus? And what Jesus did for us when he saved us? Indeed, because of the cross, the Lord has turned the world upside down. And the only people who have a clear vision and true values are those who have trusted in Jesus. third part of her song, in verses 9 and 10, she shares... Her expectation from the Lord. And what's that expectation? She her expectation is that God guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. The wicked or those who oppose the Lord in verse ten are those who try to prevail, those who try to get ahead, those who try to do it by their own strength whereas his faithful ones are those who have a covenant relationship with him those who those who know him his children and these don't rely on their own strength but on that of their god so as we look at what's going on in our country for example either with covid or what's going on politically. We may think that God has abandoned the earth to Satan and his demonic powers. We think that the Lord has given up on us and he wants nothing to do with us. He's abandoned us and wants nothing to do with us anymore. But the fact is that he is still, that there's still that this world is still the Father's world. And He has set His King on Heaven's throne. If you're a child of God walking on this earth and walking in the light, the Lord will guard and guide your steps. But sadly, the wicked walking in spiritual darkness, those who have no relationship with the Lord, who don't understand the Lord, who have never been born again or received him as, or surrendered their lives to him. They're walking in spiritual darkness because they're depending on their own wisdom and strength. It may seem that the wicked have it made, but one day the storm of God's wrath will will burst upon them in fierce judgment. So when it seems that God isn't doing anything, keep in mind that he is patient and long-suffering with those who resist him. But one day, as Psalm 3720 says, the wicked will perish. The Lord's enemies, like the glory of pastures, will fade away. They will fade away like smoke. So Hannah closed her poem with the prophetic announcement that the Lord will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. What's interesting here is that this is the first time the term his anointed is mentioned in the Bible in connection with the king. Thus Hannah's words point prophetically, not merely to the Davidic Dynasty, but to David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. After this conclusion to Hannah's Song, the narrator leaves us with the simple observation that Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of the priest Eli. Samuel's training was characterized by his development physically, but especially morally and spiritually. See, it says in verse twenty six that the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. And as the story continues to unfold, we'll see how this appropriately described a son who, like Mary's, had become a who had had come as a blessing of God. To the world. Now, in the second section, the last section we're about to read here in chapter 2, the narrator will show us differences between Samuel's growth in godliness and the moral decadence of Eli's sons. So, once more, let's go back to our passage here in 1 Samuel and read that last section. Eli's sons were wicked men, they did not respect the Lord or the priests or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come in with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, kettle, cauldron, or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, The fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself. The servant would reply, No, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord. Because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Samuel served the Lord's pre- Lord served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in, in the linen in the linen ephod. Each year, his mother made him a little robe, and took it took it to him when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this. May. May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she had given to the Lord. Then they would go home. The Lord paid attention to Hannah's need, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served in the entrance of the tent meeting the 10th of meeting. He said to them, Why are you doing these things? I have heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the news I hear from the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your forefathers' family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, to wear, the, to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your forefathers' family all the Israelite fire offerings. Why then do you, why do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel therefore this is this the Lord this is the declaration of Lord the God of Israel I did say that your family and your forefathers family would walk before me forever but now this is what the Lord this is the Lord's declaration no longer for those who honor me I will honor but those who despise me will be disgraced look the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefather's house so that none of your family will reach old age you will see the stress in the place of worship in spite of all that in spite of all that is good in Israel and no one in your family will ever again reach old age any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you all your descendants will die violently this will be the sign that will come to you concerning your two sons hophni and phinehas both of them will die on the same day then i will raise up a faithful priest for myself and he will do whatever is in my heart and mind i will establish a, a everlasting dynasty for him and he will walk before by anointed before my anointed one before my anointed one for all time. Anyone who is left in your family will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. He will say, please appoint me to some priestly office so I can have a piece of bread to eat. In verses 12 through 17, the story shifts to Eli's son's. Who were told were wicked men that did not respect the Lord. That also says that they were charged that three sins were charged against them. First, they robbed the people of their share of the peace offering, not being satisfied with just the breast and thigh. And again, these you know requirements can be found in Leviticus. But second, they demanded meat before the fat had been offered to God, thus minimizing the law. And third, they wanted to roast the meat instead of boiling it, putting their own carnal appetites first. And if anyone tried to protest, they took the meat by force. The end of verse 17 says that their sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. In contrast to their wickedness, verses 18 through 21 described what devotedness, the devotedness of the child Samuel and the faithfulness of Samuel's parents to the yearly feast. Well, in verse 22 through 26, there we're further informed, it further informs us that Eli had grown old When Eli had grown old, he had heard about everything his sons were doing doing to all of Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, although he made a sincere attempt to correct them, it wasn't enough for them to repent of their sins and return to the Lord. Their hearts had become so hardened that like the Pharaoh of old god had intended to kill them now we must remember that these events took place at the time of judges so it shouldn't surprise us that even the priesthood couldn't avoid the moral decadence of the period nevertheless during the this time samuel was quietly growing his purity and goodness pleasing both the lord and man. Well, it was only a matter of time before the Lord would respond to the wickedness to the wicked behavior of Eli's sons, and sure enough, in verses twenty-seven through thirty-six, it shows us what that response was. An unmanned unnamed man of God uh, through an unnamed man of God, the Lord rebuked Eli as harshly as he rebuked his sons. And announced the doom of Eli's priestly house. The prophet, speaking for the Lord, asked Eli some questions. Some questions to show him that his actions were stupid in light of God's call to Aaron's family to be his priest. He then rebuked Eli in verse 29 for allowing his son's appetites to have priority of. Over, the uh, over God's sacrifices, and His offering. Now, the Lord's previous promise that the priesthood would never end. Assume that the priests would be men of good, would be good men of good character. But because of the wickedness of Eli and his house, God rejected his priesthood, because they had violated the conditions for its ongoing existence. What God says at the end of verse 30 sums it up well. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be in disgrace. Furthermore, his two sons, Hophni and uh, Phineas, would die on the same day as a sign that all these judgments would come to pass. Yet the Lord would not terminate the office of the priest altogether. He states in verse thirty five that he would raise a faithful priest who would do whatever is in his heart and mind, a priest who would have a lasting dynasty and walk before his anointed one for all time. Now in human terms this was fulfilled in first Kings chapter two when the priesthood was taken from Abiathar, descendant of Aaron's son, Ilthamar, and given to Zadok, descendant of Aaron's son, Eleazar. As a result of this, Eli's descendants would be reduced to poverty, begging for bread and pleading to do menial tasks at the sanctuary. And again, thus fulfilling the words of verse 36. But in the ultimate sense, the faithful priest and anointed one are one in the same, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is both priest and king. And so what do we see here in these two chapters? Well, chapter one makes it clear that the life and future of a nation depends on the character of the home, and the character of the home depends on on the spiritual life of the parents. Eli and his sons had religious homes that were godless. But Elkanah and Hannah had a godly home that honored the Lord, and they gave him their best. The future hope of the people of Israel rested with that young lad in the tabernacle, tabernacle learning to serve the Lord. Therefore, we mustn't underestimate, underestimate the power of the home or the power of a little child dedicated to God. So it's not necessarily, again, important that you raise them in a religious home, but that you raise them, that you yourself become an ex- are an example of what it means to be a believer, what it means to be a follower of Christ. Well, in chapter 2, what we see is that in spite of the spiritual condition of the priest at that time, the future wasn't all bleak. For the man of God who announced God would raise up a faithful priest, who, for the man of God who announced that God would raise up a faithful priest who would please God's heart and God's will, although the immediate reference is to Zadok, ultimately it points to Jesus Christ. Our Lord came from the tribe of Judah, so he had no connection with the house of Aaron, but was made high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And if you're not sure what that means, then I recommend that you read Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, and that will explain it explain that to you why how he became the ultimate high priest of the Lord so as you can see there's a lot of material that was there covered in chapters one and two and I hope that again you were able to see that whether it was Hannah Elkanah well they went from hope from desperation to hope maybe you're going through that right now you're in a desperate situation. You're in a desperate time, and it's difficult for you to find hope. You find no hope. Let me tell you, you can find hope in Jesus. He will give you that hope. He will fill you with hope. You can cling on to Him, His words, and know that they will come to pass. He has made promises that will have come to pass and will continue to come to pass. You can trust in that. I know it's difficult to trust in the word of people and, and trust what people, says, what people say. You can trust in Jesus. You can trust in God because you will never lie. So hold on to him. You, and if you haven't done that, if you haven't surrendered your life to him, you can do that. You can do that today. He can give you that hope that you're desperately searching for. And so... If you're watching, listening, and you see your need, you see that you need Jesus, and you're ready to surrender your life to him, you're ready to lay your sins before him on the cross and become a believer, become born again, and know for a fact that if you were to die after this service, or after you're listening to this, that you would know without a, doubt of a, a shadow of a doubt that you would be with the Lord for all of eternity then I want to invite you to the cross and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So if that's you, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And with all your heart, all sincerity, pray this. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. And that I've blown it. So now I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins and three days later you rose from the dead. So now I turn from my sins. I repent of my sins and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Lord God, Lord Jesus, thank you for saving me. And I ask that you fill me with the Holy Spirit, so that he can help guide me in my new born-again life. In your name. Amen. If you sincerely pray that, the Bible tells us that, the Bible says that you're born again. And Right now, heaven—the angels are rejoicing in heaven because a person has gone from death to life. A sinner, another sinner has been cleansed, has been born again. So if you did, if you prayed that sincerely, I want you to reach out to me. I want to you know, speak with you, pray with you maybe lead you in your next steps of your newborn-again life. So definitely call me, email me, you know, send me messages on, a message on one of our social media sites. God is going to continue to do some great things in your life. and He will give you, again, the hope that you need. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. We hope that you were blessed. We hope that you, know, you have a great week. We'll be praying for you. So until next week, goodbye and farewell.